0: And we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So today's episode is going to be an exploration into a topic that uh, I don't know much about, but this one comes as a sequel almost, to a previous episode uh, that I did with Anthony Amore about Rose Dugdale and the way that she stole these very priceless paintings uh, done by Vermeer. Now, why is that episode interesting? Because it talks about how and why people steal priceless artwork. You know, this stuff's very difficult to flip. It's hard to sell. So why do people do it? That's a great episode to kind of learn about why people do it, because today's episode is going to be great because I'm talking to Chris Marinello, who helps recover those those stolen pieces of art. And that takes a very special set of skills that he possesses to be able to track down these thieves. You know, and some of these priceless pieces of art have been missing for decades. So how do you track it down? How do you get people to give it up? Where do, where do your tips come from? Especially if this stuff's, you know, 20, 30 years old, you know, where, what's going on here? How do we get these important pieces of history in some cases? How do we get them back? We're going to find that all out today. So I'm excited. Let's just jump right into this with Chris Marnello. Chris, first of all, thank you so much for being on the show today. And second of all, you have such a wealth of knowledge because you've been doing this a long time. I mean, you've been doing this, what, like 35 years You know, in this stolen art world, like tracking criminals down and, you know, you're almost like a, a film noir-esque kind of PI, right? <laughs> well,
1: I, I am an attorney uh, uh, and... Uh, it does require a lot of investigative work, but you know most attorneys are trained in investigative work when they're checking out uh, facts and and circumstances and and previous case law. I mean, it, there is a investigative element to the profession.
0: I didn't. I don't think I realized. that. I mean, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I, I don't think I really realized that. Um, but you know, I, I feel like you know from what I've kind of read is your your like journey in I mean, because it's, it's an interesting switch, right? I mean, you're a lawyer trained in investigation, but now as a professional, I mean, your job is to track down stolen artwork, which, you know, is probably one of the coolest professions out there. I mean, you know, video game professional video game player and maybe ice cream taste tester are on that list, but it's a short list of pretty cool jobs. How did you get from lawyer to, you know, art PI?
1: Well, I went to art school a very long time ago, and it's really what I enjoy doing in my spare time is drawing. And Hmm. I was encouraged by my family to try something else, (laughs) which might give you an idea of my (laughs) uh, quality of my drawing. But it's something I I really enjoy doing. Uh, I, I love the art world, and I love being in it. And if the art world was not going to have me as an artist, uh, they were going to have me as someone who recovered stolen art and mediated disputes involving artists and and complicated art disputes. So that's that's how I got into it.
0: You know I was looking, I think this came from your uh, your website, Art Recovery. I think it's dot uh, we'll get to nice. is that right yeah so on there uh, I th- this is a quote I believe it's from your website so I want to m- preface that you know right off the bat here it says Marinello is a one-time art student whose teachers and family members looked at his work and actively encouraged him to try a different career <laughs> uh, that I know art critics can be you know notoriously harsh but that seems
1: brutal I mean was it that bad well listen you, you know my family is very practical and uh. They were like, go out, make some money, and then when you have, make a lot of money, you can retire and become an artist. So I think uh, financial considerations had a lot to do with it. It was, go out and get a real job.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, Hitler was a, was an art student as well, and he got a different job, so um – you ever read that comparison or no?
1: Yeah, I wish uh, they they would have kept him in art school. <laughs> the world would have been a different place. Yeah, for sure.
0: So, I mean, I imagine you know, thirty-five years is a long time to be in this business. Now, I imagine, and I could be wrong here. But, uh, you know, what was your first case like? I, I envision it, you know, you being about 12, 13 years old and kind of recovering someone's someone, you know, stealing art from from the refrigerator or, you know, someone's office wall or something like that. What, what, what was your first case that got you kind of into recovering lost art?
1: Well, my very first case was in 1988, if that gives you an idea. Uh-huh. And I was yeah. an attorney and. An art gallery came to me and said, "Look, we've got some problems. Um, can you help us out?" And uh, I resolved the dispute. And of course, you know, an art gallery in New York City was uh, had some issues with uh, financing. And of course, after the successful conclusion of their case, they had no money to pay me, so they paid me in an artwork. And that uh, turned hmm. out to be a regular. Uh, fee structure over the years, uh, representing artists and art galleries that were found themselves in some trouble, and uh, they would say, "Well, we have no way to pay you. Can you take this stuff?" So I, I, the more stuff I got, the more I became interested in in collecting art and. Uh, building my own personal collection. Oh, that's interesting. So, people
0: paid. You, did, was it pieces of the art you recovered, or was it other art that they had in storage that wasn't you know? No, it like was in...
1: usually uh, artwork. You know, I, I I do a lot of pro bono work for artists. I mean, right. as a, as a as a failed artist, I, I feel sorry for artists. They are incredibly <laughs> sure. talented yeah, people, yeah. Uh-huh. and you know, uh, they run into problems all the time, and uh, you know, they they and they don't always. Make the best decisions. They consign works of art without uh, written agreements. Yep, they yep. they don't do due diligence on the people they're dealing with, and then you know uh, often their artwork goes missing. They don't get paid, and I will step up and do what I can to to get back their life's work in in some circumstances. And they are grateful and appreciative, but they can't pay me. So, you know, they'll send me a work of art. You know, I I am grateful, but um, one cannot live on representing artists alone. Trust me.
0: Well, I mean, it's funny because they're paying you in the currency that they're living off of themselves. Right. So that's true. (laughs) You you know what I mean? So they're yeah. So they're 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 not doing well financially. So but they're paying you in that. But so I, I don't think I realized that. So you must have
1: quite an art collection
0: yourself then.
1: Well, I don't keep everything. I mean, let's face it. I mean, this one artist who was who only did erotica and and nudes wanted yeah. to pay me in something that I could never hang in my house anywhere, even the bathroom. Uh-huh. So I was like, "Thank you, but don't worry about it. It's okay. Uh, we, you know, I just considered this a freebie and and try not to get into trouble again." Yeah have you ever seen, Have you ever seen The Shining?
0: I have. So there's a scene um, where uh, Carruthers is at home. This is when he's getting the shining. It's late in the movie where he's moved back to Florida or whatever, and he's sitting in his in his bed watching television. And above him on the wall is this great erotic painting that I <laughs> that I love. And it, that just made me think of that because I think he had like two or three in that scene. And it's that's like that's the funniest painting, you know. I mean, it, it creates for some awkward moments when p- people come over.
1: I'm a pretty conservative guy, so uh, yeah, that's
0: not something I would hang. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, you don't seem like, you know, he seems like a very different guy than, than, than you were, um, not just this, the psychic abilities aside. Uh, so, so one of the things, you know, one of the myths that I think in a lot of interviews that you kind of dispel in a way, but I, I want to know if that's really true, is when I watch, there's a lot of movies on art theft, and it makes it seem like two things. Number one, that art theft is pretty common, which I can't believe that it is. And number two, that the art thieves are all, you know, upper crust, debonair, attractive thieves who are stealing it, uh, you know, with the best intentions in mind. Is, is this, is, it, is there any truth to any of this at all? Okay, well,
1: what is true is that the, the uh, that art theft happens every single day. I get reports anywhere from 5 to 15 a day somewhere in the world of looting museum theft uh you know some kind of a, a personal uh, a, a private uh, collector had something stolen an art fraud case so it's it's happening every single day hmm. and art crime is more than just taking a painting off the wall of someone's house it involves fakes forgeries and and increasingly fraud, fraudulent behavior. Okay. Uh, and now, now with the the rise of these NFTs, we're seeing, you know, even more crypto art and crypto fraud taking place. So, you know, there's all different kinds of art crime. So there, yes, art crime happens every day. Now, the, the second part of your question is: Are these characters romantic? intelligent, debonair, suave? No, they're not. Uh, Most of the people I deal with are common thugs. And the only reason they steal art is not for the love of the artwork. It's because they know that they can get cash out of it. These are just common thugs that would steal from their own mother. There's nothing romantic about them. There's nothing attractive about them. Um, You know, they, they, they don't always think about the next step after they commit a crime, and they certainly don't think about what they're doing to the collector or to the museum or to the world when they are committing their crime. It's all about how can they convert what they've just done to fast cash and move on.
0: Well, there has to be some debonair sexy art criminals. Or do they just not well, get if caught? If you to need them, that point them in my direction. <laughs> <right>. That's fair. <laughs> I see nothing but ugly thugs. <laughs> <laughs> now, I do. I do sense you know uh, a, a little, a little something in your voice here. Is is your connection to art and your love of the art world? Does that kind of <laughs> upset you that these people take it and and uh, ruin it?
1: Well, they really don't understand what they're doing. I mean, when they take something from a church, they think, oh, well, you know, let me flip this and and get, you know, 50 bucks for it. They don't realize that that people go into the church and worship and and that the object they've just stolen, I mean, forget about whether it's worth, you know, 50 bucks or or 500,000 bucks. It's something that helps people with their worship. Mm-hmm. And, and the criminals don't realize that when they just snap it off the wall and run out of the church. And that's what really makes me mad. You know, they'll, and, and they'll take something that has been created, a beautiful sculpture that's, that, you know, weighs tons, and they'll melt it down for the pure metal value you know, yeah. so that people can no longer appreciate it and it's just reduced to some scrap metal for them to get, a you know, a, a couple of hundred bucks out of. It's, it's just, it's the second crime after the actual theft. Yeah. No, th- that makes
0: perfect sense to me. I mean, you know, you're talking about pieces of art that have to be handled by professionals and even then there's a risk uh, of damage, however slight. But, you know, you got some, you know, grubby hand, grubby pawed, uh, thug who's just rolling it up and sticking it in, you know, in their back pocket or whatever as they run out of the, the museum. I can
1: understand that. <laughs> I mean, that's, that sure. must be I mean, a lot the of the entire story. process, uh, you know, the handling of the, from the criminal, the recovery process, what happens w- with the artwork uh, that has been uh, missing for all these years. You know, I've had artwork, uh, stolen artwork returned to me in a, in a black plastic garbage bag through the wow. window of a Mercedes. Wow. And then, if the police are involved, it's it's the, hand, the handling of the artwork in the police station itself. Yeah, you oh. know, I, I I had this one million dollar painting that was being passed around by police officers in 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 one state. I will I don't want to name it, uh, but they were passing or ar- the painting around during their Christmas party and saying, "Look, guys, this is worth a million bucks." Ah, yeah. You know? So no, it's nothing's good after artwork is stolen.
0: Well, I think in one interview called the thieves cultural barbarians, but in some ways, you know, and not not to disparage police officers, but, you know, when you don't have the, when you're ignorant of the value, the cultural value of something, I mean, they're almost, they almost sound just as bad as the thieves, because I'm guessing the thieves ran around taking selfies with the, with this million dollar painting as well. You know, they're pretty
1: excited to show that off. Yeah. There's, um, you know, it's not just police officers that aren't always trained. It's even, even myself, I was handling a $30 million Matisse and I was being, one of my staff yelled at me and said, put the gloves on, put the gloves on. So, you know, it, 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 it can be anybody. Sure, sure, sure. Uh the, you
0: know, there was this reminds me of, you know, this conversation reminds me of this. I did an interview with a guy named Anthony Amore, who's the head of security for the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. And that was the site, I'm sure as you know, um, and the listeners will as well, but that was the site of the largest art theft in history, which is still, you know, unsolved. Now, Anthony wasn't in charge. He wasn't the head of security then when it was robbed, you know, to be to be fair to him. But he wrote this book on a on a the a female thief named Rose Dugdale, who was unique, a mm-hmm. because she was a female, but also because when she she stole Vermeer's, the name of the book is uh, it's Vermeer's in the title, and those are you know. Require a trained eye to really spot them out, and they're 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 quite valuable. But you know, she doesn't fit this mold that you're talking about because she was robbing them for for political purposes to use as ransom for you know the IRA in Ireland or whatever. It's much more mm-hmm. complex. But she does strike me as one of these unique cases where you do have an intelligent. Art, uh, art aficionado who then turns to crime, but does handle everything with the gentle touch of a you know someone who of a connoisseur, uh,
1: you know. So they do exist. Some of them. Listen, that's that's a rare instance, sure, in, in, from what I've seen. And I uh, listen. I have a great deal of respect for Anthony, and I'm happy that we're plugging his book on my podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm plugging uh, my
0: podcast on my podcast, which is even worse. It's
1: great. <laughs> it, it's great. Uh, so. Um, but I have not run into many Rose Dugdales. I, I, I've run into some people who claim, you know, after they get caught, they say, "Oh, I stole this Kandinsky because, uh, you know, I'm I'm protesting the uh, the current politics in in Poland." And I'm like, "Well, you, what, you don't know anything about the current politics in Poland. You're just a criminal." I mean, they. they you know, they try to make an excuse, but you know, it's it's really then why did you try to sell the thing fifty times to and finally get caught when you tried to sell it to an FBI agent? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but there are not that many Rose Dugdales out there.
0: All right, that's fair. Um, but you know, if we can't if we can't talk about sexy criminals, we can talk about, you know, quote unquote sexy crimes, because there are a lot of very interesting, high profile crimes that have been committed. You know, the the scream was stolen and then recovered, you know, several Van Goghs have been stolen and recovered. You know, the Isabel Stewart Gardner theft, that's still unsolved. Um, the Dresden Green Vault robberies, you know, those are also pretty famous, which I think you've talked about on a couple of um, shows. And the video, I mean, the video of that of that robbery is truly brutal if you're an art fan. Um, have you ever... You know, I imagine these high-profile cases, you know, cracking those cases has got to be exciting. Are you, do you work on those? Do you think they're solvable? You know, is the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum, are those pieces of art even still around? I mean, these these have to be the ones that keep you up at night as a as an art fan.
1: Well, I do think the Isabella Stewart Gardner paintings are still out there. I, I uh, believe that the possessors are somewhat skittish about accepting the reward, it, as dramatic as that reward is—ten million dollars. Yeah. I think they're afraid uh, that somebody's going to come forward uh, and and arrest them. And even though the district attorneys have said that um, there would not be a criminal charge in most cases, I think that um, there needs to be an intermediary. And I've volunteered my services uh, pro bono if the possessors wanted to come forward and use my escrow account to have the museum deposit the 10 million and 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 put the paintings in escrow and then we make the swap so they never have to deal directly with law enforcement and and, and you know I've I've tried I've discussed this with with Anthony and um, with the FBI and uh, I think it's uh, getting that possibility out there might help bring these paintings back to the Isabel Stewart Gardner Museum. Because what, you know, it's been over 30 years yeah. and uh, nothing else has worked.
0: Yeah, nothing at all. I mean, everything's still out. So, th- I mean, that's an interesting that's an interesting proposal. And it makes me wonder, how does that recovery process go? Like, I mean, from the time something is stolen or someone contacts you, contacts you obviously, you know, that particular theft is a you know, cold case. 30 years is quite a long time. So I imagine the process for... You know, a newly stolen piece of art versus a cold case is different, but they must parallel in some ways to, you know, almost like a kidnapping in some ways,
1: you know? Well, there's there's no, you know, there's, there's countless different scenarios, but I'll give you a general idea of what happens after something is stolen. Uh, it gets reported to the police. If it's a big enough theft, it makes it to the press, in the old days, um, something stolen in 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 London uh, it wouldn't be reported in the United States, you know, right away. It would take a while, but mm-hmm. with the internet, um, it's instant. So things have changed dramatically. So the news of a of a theft is everywhere now, and then what'll happen is there will uh, the the thief will then try to unload the object quickly. If it's a high-profile thing, they might wait for an insurance company to appear, and they'll read the press. Um, I sometimes get contacted because I represent many of the fine art insurance companies out there, um, and they want to know if there's a reward or or they actually ransomed it, uh, the artwork back. I mean, uh, there's a difference between reward and ransom. Mm-hmm. Your, your listeners need to know mm-hmm. that – a reward is offered by an insurance company with law enforcement approval for information that leads to the recovery of the artwork, um, but not to the thief. They won't pay any any criminals. And a ransom is when the criminal themselves or somebody connected to the criminals or a possessor says, look, I'm not going to tell you where this artwork is unless you wire 20,000 euros of Bitcoin to this account. Right. I and mean, that's a ransom. So we don't get involved in ransoms. We've never paid a ransom. We won't pay a ransom. Now, rewards, uh, we have paid out uh, where it's legal uh, and where it was authorized by uh, law enforcement uh, and where the conditions were met. So the thief, after they try to unload the artwork, um, they will try to ransom it or, or collect some sort of a reward. Or they will try to sell it in the marketplace, and they may find that particularly difficult. Um, there's always people out there that will buy something no questions asked, and that's unfortunate. But the more high profile a work of art is, the hotter it becomes and the harder it becomes to sell. That's when they can't make a sale. The artwork will then trade for years, if not decades, on some sort of a black market where at a fraction of its true value, where criminals will buy and sell and at a very small fraction of its value or change it for, exchange it for drugs or weapons and or some other criminal will take a chance on it um, now artwork surfaces stolen artwork surfaces years later when the criminals you know die or or somebody else steals it from them and, and or somebody tries to put it into the marketplace surreptitiously. And we work with a number of databases that would locate, that would spot these work, stolen works of art when they're introduced into the marketplace or offered for sale. Uh, or if somebody checks one of these databases, whether it's the FBI database, Interpol, uh, there are a number of private databases, one that we set up, so uh, th- this is how we find stolen works of art. More than any other way is when they get placed for sale.
0: That I mean that makes a lot of sense. But and I also I was reading that a lot of your information comes from other thieves as well. When they kind of turn on each other, either for the reward money, or you know maybe the, th- the that other thief did something to them. So I mean there's a lot of interesting ways where you can kind of get tips. And there was, right. there was one story where um, you've had to deal with a lot of mafia members as well, uh, um, and you've, you've had your life threatened over artwork, which seems crazy. It also seems crazy to me that that the mafia would be interested in art, but I imagine that has to happen.
1: Well, I think all criminal organizations and criminals individually are interested in artwork because it's fast cash. Mm. It's, they're, they're, it's easy to transport. You could put it in a suitcase, move it around. Uh, you know, it's, it's another form of currency when, when they need currency. Right. Uh, but you know, it's, um, you know, so that, that's what thieves will do after something is stolen. The recovery process is entirely something else altogether. That kind of depends on where the object is found. Uh, who contacts me sometimes victims themselves find their objects and say what do I do I, I found my uh, my mother's artwork being sold on on eBay oh wow. you know yeah. they don't know what to do what do they do well I invite them to call me <laughs> and I'll sort it out for them but what unfortunately what they often do is is write to the guy on eBay saying you have my stolen artwork and that's the, the last they hear of them right right yep 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 you know? Yeah, and if it, if the matter happens to be an open criminal case with a law enforcement agency, that agency needs to be notified, and we always notify the police when we know that the the case is is, a, is an open cold case.
0: You know, one of the things. I think someone was asking you if whether you know your job was sexy I think you've even been compared to René Russo from the Thomas Crown affair and, and <laughs> okay. your re- response was I mean obviously you don't strike me as as René Russo, but um the, the, your response was interesting and in that you said that you really, what you do is it's not sexy at all. You basically make a bunch of phone calls, do research and argue with people all day. <laughs> That's essentially. Your yeah. Job. I,
1: I do spend a lot of time arguing and negotiating. <laughs> right. I mean, the first step is to prove that something is stolen. So, you know, you have to dig up the, pol- the police report. You have to, pr- and then they say, well, how do we know that this is the same painting? So then we have to deal with you know, the, the, the actual painting itself, the artwork itself and show exact that why it's exactly the same watch or the same car or the same painting. Mm -hmm. Then we also have to deal with the provenance. Well, well, you know, this could be another version. Well, then we look at the provenance of the stolen artwork and the provenance of the one that they have Mm -hmm. where they both you know, exhibited in, in Vienna in 1951. Uh, you know, were they both in the hands of this one particular collector? And and this way we create a match. We say, look, unequivocally, this is the same work of art. It was stolen. It has now been found. You're in possession of it. That's when the negotiation starts. <laughs> right. Well, then they say, well, I bought it in good faith. Uh, it was, you know, uh, I, I, under the laws of my jurisdiction and that's when i have to put my legal hat back on because the laws of the us and the uk are different from those in france right. and switzerland yep. and germany mm-hmm. so uh, you know i have to sort out the laws of different jurisdictions different uh, places of purchase different places of sale and and different places of theft so it it can get extremely complicated and the more valuable a uh, work of art is, the more lawyers come out of the w- woodwork. I, I settled a case over a 36 million pound, that's almost $50 million Dega. There were six sets of lawyers involved. Wow. And I had to sort it all out. Everyone had their own interest in it. One billionaire wanted to buy it from another billionaire. And it was a Nazi looted art claim connected to it. And it was just a mess. And it took months Months of, of of negotiation and deal-making to make everybody reasonably happy.
0: <laughs> I like that, reasonably happy. It's as close as you can get. I guess that is a that's success. It,
1: that's it. So that is, there's a lot of negotiating going on here. Yeah. It's very rare that I approach a dealer uh, and say, look, that work of art that you have on the wall is stolen. And they hand it back to me and say, oh, I want nothing to do with stolen art. And it's – again, the case is over. right. Uh, right. That has happened before by some very reputable dealers that I have dealt with over the years but it's 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 not typical. You mentioned the,
0: you know, a Nazi looting claim. That that's kind of an interesting aspect of your work because I don't want to I don't I don't want to put words you know it, to your story here but it seems like you kind of specialize in that or at least deal with it a lot and this seems like a very tricky Topic for a lot of different reasons, not the least of which is, as you mentioned, you're an international company dealing with laws that are different in every country in the world. Include, you know, even in Europe, all the the countries there are all very different. Uh, that has to be very tricky to navigate as you, you know, kind of investigate some of these Nazi looting claims. Um, how often, I mean, are there, I think I was reading, you know, one article about how there's like these caches of Nazi, you know, looted art that show up. How do you, when you stumble across something like that, how does that all get figured
1: out? Well, the first step is you have to have brilliant art historians working with you and provenance researchers. And I Mm -hmm. do have some that are just incredible. And and why I say that is because... They help build the case. Mm-hmm. They show that a painting belonged to a certain family that was murdered during the Holocaust and, and where it was before the war and where it was during the war and, and 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 what happened immediately after. And they they are able to put together the claim for me to show why this painting belongs to somebody else. Mm-hmm. I then can approach the museum or the collector that has it and say, look, without a doubt, this painting was looted from this family before they were murdered. The next question is, you know, I then get approached by a lawyer for a museum or a collector saying, well, okay, we we agree it was looted, but we bought it in good faith under the law of our country, Norway, or whatever it might be, and we intend to keep it. And that's when I then need to develop a strategy on on how to get it back to the family, how to get restitution, mm-hmm. despite the fact that, you know, y- y- horrendous things happened to these people. They were mur- they were, they were murdered, and their objects were taken from them, and their their lives were taken from them, and their possessions were taken from them, and their history was taken from them. And and some people just don't care. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I've I've got a case going right on right now where a dealer sold a Nazi looted painting to one of his clients in in Switzerland, and he couldn't care less. He just he said he just the prominence that he gave. Was oh the family that owned this? Uh, they bought it in Paris in 1942. Well, that's no kind of provenance. The Nazis ran Paris in <laughs> right. 1942. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, seriously, and 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 so now I'm battling. I'm putting pressure on the German government to put pressure on this private dealer to do something because the principles that are in place for Nazi covering covering Nazi looted art, these Washington principles of 1998, 1988. Mm-hmm. They don't apply to private individuals or dealers, and so I am trying to get the German government. I'm dealing with the, with 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 the the authorities in Germany to put pressure on this dealer to release the name of the current possessor, so that I can then at least have a meeting and discuss terms. Oh, I see. But but they are putting every obstacle in my way because in Germany the rights of the private individual outweigh the rights of the Holocaust victims that suffered at the hands of the National Socialists in Germany. And that's got to change.
0: That's kind of shocking given how much, you know, both the German government and the German people would want to put that behind them. Because, I mean, it is kind of what people think about when they hear Germany. I mean, I hate to say that, but that's, you know, it's still 80 years later, you know.
1: You can't put something behind you unless you deal with it head on. Right, yeah. And Germany does not want to do that. They want to talk about it. They want to shake hands with a lot of people and and the World Jewish Congress. They love to shake hands with people from the World Jewish Congress. But, yeah. you know, let's see some deeds, less words. Yeah, yeah. I
0: completely agree. But, I mean, it is—it's just such—I mean, because it is so tangled, and it seems like a one-sided story. I mean, I understand that people— you know, there, maybe they bought it in good faith or whatever, but I mean, there has to, at some point, the atrocities that, that brought that painting to your possession, that has to weigh on someone's you know moral compass. But
1: it seems like- You would think that more people would re- be receptive to that thought yeah. that you just, you know, y- you just said, I mean, but you'd be surprised. I have looked at dealers in the eye and said, this family was murdered in Auschwitz. Nothing has ever been recovered from them except one painting, Mm -hmm. one painting that went through your sale room and they look at me blankly like I'm from Mars. They couldn't care less. And then there's a pause and then they say, oh, but uh, we paid uh, X amount of euros for this. So that's really what it comes down to. It's all about money.
0: Well, there's this interesting. So I, I don't want to get ahead of myself because I wanted to. I want to get a couple of your stories because you actually deal with a lot of different things, including stolen cars, stolen watches. Um, so it's not, it doesn't just. It's not just limited to paintings and, and and traditional artwork. But there, I was reading this this one story about a stolen watch, and this was so interesting to me, um, both because uh, Richard is it Millet? Is that how you say it? Uh, it's Mier. <laughs> Yay. Of course, of course. Of course I mispronounced it. So we can call it Richard Mille because we're both speaking English. Sure, sure. But, you know, it's funny, first of all, how many of his watches get stolen and how much they're worth given how ugly they are, if I can say that as a non-artist. Um, they're not my style. Let me just say that. They're not my style.
1: Well, yeah, I don't want to call them no, up. There's that a lot of people that love that they, sure. they, they look like Formula One race cars on your wrist. Yeah. That's what they... That and if that's what you are into, then God bless yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. I, I take full
0: responsibility for my words there. Um, but you know, it's, anyway, they, they get stolen and it's this interesting story where one gets stolen in London, I believe. It ends up in Dubai, someone buys it from a merchant in Dubai. Two years later it goes in for service, you know, traditional regular service at an official yep. Richard uh Millet. Richard Mie. Richard Mie. Richard Richard Mie, go ahead. Richard Mie, a service, you know, official servicing. And then, you know, pops up in a database because they're all all serial numbered because, you know, there's only 30 in existence or whatever. And, you know, it comes down like, hey, this is a stolen watch. So the, the purchaser wants their money back from the person they bought it from. And I think you got in touch with, like, the dealer to try to figure out who actually was the thief in this situation to try to hold them responsible or whatever. And... It was funny because then you talk about the chain that goes on from there, which is the guy who bought it wants his money back from the person he bought it from, you know, the I think it's like authentic luxury watches in Dubai. But then that seller, instead of contact tech, tech and the police working with them, asks for his money back from the person he bought it from. And it just, you know, that passing the buck goes all the way down to the thief, uh, which is just such an interesting way to go about it. Instead of like working with authorities, everyone just wants their money back. You know,
1: well, I mean, we call that downlining, you know, we, 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 you know, do that tracking and, and sometimes I will help each part of the chain get their money from the person that, that sold it to them. But as you keep going down and down the chain, you eventually find somebody who bought without asking questions. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. there will be people say, well, I bought this watch at Sotheby's in Hong Kong. OK, well, that's, you know, uh, you know, that's fine. Then they say, well, I, I bought that from a jeweler in, in Dubai. OK, that's fine. But then, you know, you eventually reach the guy that said, you know, I bought it from a guy named Fred on the street corner. Well, that that's the guy that loses out. OK. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's you don't do due diligence when you're buying from a guy named Fred on the street corner. <laughs> sure, um, right. Yeah. You, you've got to find out where did the watch come from and you're taking a chance. You'll, you could lose everything. Yeah. So, you know, and as you dig even deeper, when you d- reach Fred on the street corner, either Fred's the thief himself or he bought it from the thief. He's a fence. Yeah. Yeah. And we very rarely dig even deeper. Beyond that, to to that thief, because that's the job of law enforcement. You know, they're the ones with the guns and the badges. I'm interested in getting the object back to the victim. And it's the police that are interested in most of the time, interested in solving the crime and, and getting the collar. Sure, right. And and taking that piece of artwork and passing
0: it around at a at an office party at, first at a Christmas yeah, right. party yeah on, on, occasion, on, a... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on occasion on occasion on occasion on occasion know but it's interesting because you you know you're so into this you created this website um called art is it artiv a r t i v e right Dot
1: org yeah we've we've converted it to a uh, uh, a public database now it's a it's a for profit enterprise and we're relaunching it as the art claim database shortly so that people can, it'll serve as a private database for stolen and looted works of art
0: i mean it's it's a, a fantastic database, and on your website, um, the Art Recovery website, you have a lot of thief alerts which remind me I, I loved going through them because it was very similar to going on the FBI's most wanted list and seeing like you know who's who's who the, who's the FBI looking for now but you you know you have a couple of great you know, things that are you know currently stolen that you're that you're actively working on. I was very surprised to find two Norman Rockwell paintings that have been stolen that you're looking for. Um, and, and I love I love Norman Rockwell, but it was interesting to look at it because, you know, you're, you know, you think of like your famous painters, Picasso, Munch, Dali, Van Gogh, Monet. I don't think, I don't put Rockwell or, you know, Bob Ross. I love his stuff too. I don't put them in the same category, <laughs> but it's just interesting to see them on your website. But I imagine, I mean, is there is there a, a market for stolen Norman Rockwells?
1: Yes, of course there really? is. Uh, Rockwell's work is incredible. I mean, it's I not love it. particularly my style. But you know something? Have you ever sat and looked at a Norman Rockwell work of art? It's extremely soothing. It goes brings you back to a different time when the world was simpler and there weren't Kabul problems and and, and, <laughs> right, and yeah. cyber uh, cyber fraud issues. So it, they're very nice paintings. Um, and but I will recover anything as long as it means something to somebody and is uniquely identifiable it doesn't have to be a, a, a you know a 50 million dollar painting it could be you know somebody's wedding ring as long as it's you know if it's if, if it says it's engraved you know to my w- wife anna uh, you know it, it, then it's identifiable mm-hmm. and i will work on it yeah. and if i find it i'll return it so uh you know it really depends it, and people are pretty upset when they lose something, you know, a lot, a lot of this artwork isn't just, you know, for them, the money it's, it it means something to people. Right.
0: Yeah. No. And I agree with you. Look, I love Norman Rockwell's paintings. It was just funny to see two of them on the website.
1: Well, you know, when I I do a lot of work for insurance companies and when something is of, you know, a particular client says, we've got to have these back, uh, please put out a theft alert. You know, I will do that. And uh, and we often we get tips uh, for everything from Norman Rockwell's to uh, you know to James Bond car and all other watches. And sometimes they they turn they pan out, and sometimes they don't.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. I, I love that you brought up the James Bond car because I wanted to go to stolen cars next because this was something, you have a couple of them on your on your thief alert, uh, theft alert on your uh, on your website as well. But the, the James Bond car, this is a really interesting story. There's actually an entire podcast dedicated, I think it's called The Great James Bond Car Robbery. Uh, I mean, I, I, first of all, I love antique cars. Uh, I'm here in Los Angeles where there's the Nethercut Museum. I'm walking distance from the Peterson Auto Museum. And these aren't, I mean, these are world-class auto museums. There's a Duesenberg at the Nethercut, which is the most beautiful piece of machinery I have ever seen. Uh, So these are obviously, this is big business. They are works of art and you recover them as well, which must be very tricky. But this, we're talking about the Aston Martin from Goldfinger. Uh, This was owned by a private collector in Florida. It was, it, it has such a great story um, because it basically, it was, it was in a hangar. Someone came in the middle of the night. They were able to not only steal it, but fly it out of the airport undetected. And then it just kind of went into the wind. How did you get involved with this case? Because you've kind of, you're quoted as calling this your white whale.
1: Well, I mean, it's, you're, you're right to, the Spyscape has recently uh, done a fantastic, uh, series, uh, narrated, uh, by Elizabeth Hurley, um, Hurley. And this is one of my uh, clients, the insurance company that paid out on the theft in 1997. And they've asked me to try to locate the car. And we agreed to do the podcast, which was my first podcast. This is maybe my third but uh, or second. I don't know. But, um, You're doing great, by the way, Christopher. You're doing great. Well, thank yeah. you. I, it... it um, it's something that I wanted to do to get the word out that I was getting closer. I had a few months ago, I, I got a very good tip from someone who claimed to have seen the car. Uh-huh. Now I I get tips all the time because there's many many silver Aston Martin DB5s out there in the world, mm-hmm. but there's only one with the plate DP two sixteen one, and this particular individual called me and he said, I, I seen the car, I know the car. And he described something that only someone who had seen this car would know, which was particularly intriguing. And so we said, all right, let's cooperate with this podcast company, Spyscape. They're going to do a great job and, and get the word out there. And maybe I can reach the collector that has it before I have to contact them directly because we we, we know we, we've got a good sense of who the collector is and 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 high net worth individual, particularly important. Um, you know, and we want them to send their handlers to me and arrange a meeting and we could resolve this amicably and discreetly. You know, so clandestine. (laughs) Well, listen,
0: (laughs) cloak and dagger, man. It is spy. You're a spy. You are
1: high net worth. Individuals don't like publicity. Publicity is bad for business. It's bad for everything. And, And it's bad in the art world. So you know, a lot of my colleagues who who love to bring lawsuits over these these types of cases. This is not what my clients want. They because lawsuits are public, and you 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 know you could find out who's litigious and who's not. You know who's involved in a in a stolen art case and who's not. You know this way, I meet in a room in an office, I hammer out a deal, and no one ever hears about it.
0: Well, it's an interesting story because with that particular car and, and what a lot of people you know what's, what what was new information for me let's say is when an insurance company pays out for a particular item that's insured like let's say this Aston Martin db5 the so the, the owner who the guy who bought it he no longer technically owns it uh, he's been paid out the uh, six million dollars, or whatever it was, back in the '90s, late '97 or whatever. And now the insurance company is technically the owner of that car, and so they have, you know, obviously a vested interest in getting it back. But my question is, if you're let's let's say you happen to recover this DB Mart, this uh, this Aston Martin um, DB5, who and let's say the original owner wants it back, which would
1: make sense. How how does how is that arranged? Well, I mean, I do this all the time. Uh, a lot of the artwork I recover is insured and it is owned by the insurance company when the item is recovered. And some of the better fine art insurance companies will offer the works of art back to their clients, back to their victims, mm-hmm. and say, look, you know, this was stolen from you 20 years ago, uh, Marinella recovered it we're offering it back to you and you just need to pay us back what we paid you 20 years ago. You know, it really depends on what the wording of the policy. Sometimes it's a straight out pay us back what we paid you. Sometimes it includes, uh, the costs. Uh, sometimes it, it's, it's at fair market sure, value. Right. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of times I get people that say, well, you know, thank you, but I've already replaced that watch. I've already replaced the artwork. I don't want it back. I'm happy. I'm happy with the insurance proceeds that I got, you know, it's it's, it's you know they, they they don't always want the artwork back and then I end up having to sell it, consign it for sale to various galleries or dealers or auction houses that I work with around the world. However, with the, in the car world it's very strange. Car collectors are so incredibly passionate about their vehicles they very rarely let the insurance company take over right they want that car back because they, they may have spent their entire life looking for that color that model right. that yeah. engine yep. that you know and th- and that's why you see so many of those cars on on my website because the owners call me and say please put out a theft alert you know i that that was my life's dream that car and it's gone you know, and they don't want the insurance money. They just want their car back.
0: No, and I imagine that's, you know, there's a lot of that. I mean, out here in LA, I mean, you know, Jay Leno is, f- you know, famous for having an amazing car collection, uh, which I have seen, and it is quite a collection. And there are everything in there he has, you know, there's some kind of connection to. So if something were to be stolen, right.
1: he would want the
0: car back. The the money's irrelevant. Yeah,
1: he could easily take the, the money and buy another version of it or even a better version. Sure. But to, to him, it's the connection to that purchase. And, and that's something only a true automotive collector can understand. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, you know, And there's another, this, I don't know if you do this or not, but this
0: just made me think of this that I wanted to bring up. There's, I think it was December of 2020 here in Los Angeles. There was a 310-year-old um, violin stolen. It was a 1710 Amadi. And it was basically taken out of a person's car. The owner wasn't a musician, but they were an art dealer. And they would let people, you know, they would let people use the violin, you know, for the or for orchestras and things like that. It's, I mean, quite an impressive violin, to say the least, and absolutely a piece of art. Have you ever dealt with anything like that? I mean, or is that kind of, I
1: imagine that has got to be in your wheelhouse somewhere. It, that particular case is. Oh, no So kidding. I can't get into too many details about it. But um, I can say that I've recovered uh, stolen musical instruments before. Uh-huh. It's 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 very strange because most of the instruments are lost because the the musicians are a bit scatterbrained and leave them in taxi cabs or on trains. I mean, these are this is their life's work and it's, it's an extension of their arms and legs and hands and feet and and somehow they just let them go. Uh-huh. You know, maybe they're thinking about their performance or, you know, they have a you know just a different artistic mentality that they're so wound up in what they're going to do that they forget their instrument. Um, you know, this it's very rare that you have a, a break in and they grabbed the, the violin, you know, it's usually, oh, we left it on the seat of the taxi cab and now it's showing up in Holland at an auction house, you know? So, uh, but I have worked on those cases and they're just like anything else, just like another fine work of art. So, I, so with this particular case, one
0: from December, 2020, can you give anything that you, that you're working on or is it, is it pretty hush hush?
1: No, no, I, 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 I can't. Nothing, huh? <laughs> So I'm getting, I'm giving you nothing on
0: that. <laughs> are you, are you you're knocking on the door on this guy? I hope. Cause this is a, it's a pretty fantastic violin out here in LA. You must've done a lot of work. Is there any case that really kind of sticks out as,
1: as a uh, memorable out here on the West coast? Well, one of my favorite LA based cases was, um, a, about $20 million worth of artwork was taken from a family in Beverly Hills. Wow. And th- I was this was in 2008 and I was um, interviewed by one of the newspapers at the time about the theft. And then in uh, years later. I got a phone call from a guy named Darko from the Balkans. I I I thought he was kidding me. I thought he was kidding me, but he, but that was his name. And and he said he knew where these artworks were and he sent photos, which matched the photos that we had on our database. This guy knew where the objects were and we set up a, a sting operation with the LAPD. And, um, instead of, uh, being, um, Don, the insurance guy, the, we, we set up Don, the LAPD officer. And that officer took over the role that I had originally set up and, and worked with Darko to recover the artwork, $20 million worth of, uh, of, of Warhols and other paintings. And, um, Darko turned out to be, um, Eligible for the reward, which was considerable because he was not the thief. The the LAPD was able to make the arrest with the assistance of the FBI. And um, (laughs) almost everybody was happy. The LAPD had a press conference and said that uh, they recovered all this artwork thanks to an overseas tip. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no mention of of our work, of my work, but, uh,
0: and Darko so from the Balkans got, uh, got it got paid.
1: Oh yeah, he got paid out very well. That's right. That's a gr- that's a great story. So I'm working on a five billion dollar watch right now that was stolen from Athens, Greece. And and is being offered for sale on Instagram. Whoa, okay. really?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, wow. I mean, that's so bizarre. I mean, it's really like from the penthouse to the outhouse, right? I mean, normally you would go go down Rodeo Drive here in Los Angeles, buy a high end watch, you know, walk around town, whatever. It gets stolen and it ends up on Instagram, which is s- s- social media, right? I mean, yeah, you know, it- it's just such a strange turn of events, you know.
1: Right, but the the thief doesn't have the original papers, so they can't sell the watch for its true value. Mm-hmm. They, they they have to deal in these in the margins, and someone will always take a chance on it. But we encourage people: don't buy rare watches, don't buy fine automobiles, don't buy fine art from anybody you don't know, and and that doesn't give you a full provenance. You have to do due diligence before you buy anything today, anything. Yeah. We do it. We buy a washing machine, right? right? You do it when you buy a toaster. You want to find out the best reviews on your toaster. <laughs> right, but why yeah. would people buy things like art and wa- and million dollar watches without doing any due diligence at all? It's crazy, <laughs> right? Yeah.
0: I want to close with a couple of fun stories that um, that I, I really enjoyed. Uh, the first one is about a watch, and I want to get a couple of details on this because this seemed, you know, like something out of the North Pole. Um, there was it's a story where it's a, it's a, another Richard Millier. I'm, I hope I'm getting that right. number 11. Now this was stolen when a guy's uh, the, the owner, his basement flooded and I think it was in a safe and he pulled it out of the safe because he didn't want it to get ruined. He put it on his patio to dry and then he comes back out and it's gone. Uh, I believe you got involved ends up all over the world and somehow, A reindeer gets blamed for stealing this watch. I'm sure that that's an oversimplification. What actually happened in this story?
1: Well, the police report and the insurance report actually had the language that you just said. There was a, the man had a a, a flood in his basement, put his watch and some other jewelry outside to dry, and then it was gone. And he couldn't figure out how a human could have gotten into his yard. Uh, he did say that he had reports of deer that were in his backyard that were eating his flowers or his plants or whatever it was. And he was convinced that the deer saw the shiny object and picked it up and off he went. Now, this case came to me like a gift from heaven just before Christmas because we're dealing talking about right, a deer. Yeah. Exactly. You know, you know, there are no reindeer in, in the UK. It's a, probably was a road deer, right. but you know, we tweaked it a little bit to fit the <laughs> sure, holidays. Sure. Um, but, uh, that, that was a true story. That that was the story the, the victim was going with. Okay. Uh-huh. And, and, and I hear stories like this all the time of, you know, artwork being lost behind sofas and, and, you know, uh, being taken by animals and, 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 you know, bl- husbands were blaming their wives and wives blaming their husbands. And, you I, i've heard it all
0: so did that happen i mean was did a reindeer actually take it well listen or do uh, not know?
1: like i said before i i rarely do i actually catch the thief <laughs> sure okay i i get the watch back i recover the watch for the victim it's up to the police with the badges and the guns to track down the reindeer <laughs> and interview him, right
0: uh why he stole what he right. stole right you're not in animal control for god's sakes that's um, it. All right. So th- this last one, this is this is a great story. I'm going to let you tell this from the beginning to end, but I'm going to give you a little reminder here. So this, I believe, is the first time you were trying to negotiate a hundred million dollar Picasso from a former art thief. You were meeting them in Amsterdam. Um, and prior to this negotiation, you thought it'd be a good idea to take your family on a vacation to Amsterdam while you negotiated the stolen piece of artwork.
1: Um, I'll let you pick up the story from there. Oh, God, that was a disaster. Um, Yeah, I, uh, I was going to Amsterdam to meet this art thief who was 80 something years old. And he had information on a very expensive Picasso, well over 100 million. And I told him, he asked me, what hotel are you staying in? And uh, I told him and, um, but I took my family there because I think it was around uh, Thanksgiving and uh, we were going to have Thanksgiving in in Amsterdam, which is hard enough finding a place uh, for traditional American Thanksgiving. But we we found, (laughs) we found one and it was amazing. But anyway, the thief called the hotel and ended up going, you know, I had rented, I had taken two rooms and ended up getting the room of of my mother-in-law and she comes into breakfast and says you know there's some guy on the phone about a picasso and i was just <laughs> had my hand in my head i just it just was right. like what a mistake that was um, so i i immediately said don't worry about it i got it i grabbed the phone Arranged the meeting and, and swore I would never do that again. So, oh, you're uh, lucky it wasn't
0: like you know the head of the mafia or something like that you
1: were arranging. It. Well, listen, I felt reasonably comfortable with this sure. grandfatherly type art thief, um, yeah. all dressed in black. Another debonair art thief, right? No? Well, he'd been arrested a number of times and uh, served time in prison. I don't know how debonair he was, but he did know where a multi-million dollar uh, Picasso was. Can't be all bad, right? Uh,
0: I have to tell you, my favorite story is the um, 15th century astrolabe that you recovered. Uh, this is a great story. I'm going to try to find a picture and put it up. But this is, you know, an antique um, stargazing piece of equipment from the 15th century. Uh, this was pretty cool. The story is a little gruesome, um, but uh, but this was a pretty cool—this has to be—is this the most unique thing that you've recovered?
1: Well, it certainly is one of them. I mean, as I was fascinated by this object, and I, I did get a chance to play with it a little bit, um, with gloves on, of course. Sure, sure, but, sure. But uh, this was one of many items stolen um, by – it was an insider theft. It was, it was stolen by one of the curators who, was, who had a habit for fast cars and, and Italian suits, and so he would take small objects and he would sell them in the marketplace at auction or to dealers, and this would feed his, his clothing habit. And um, eventually they, they caught him in the act of stealing from different libraries and museums around Sweden. And he fled to his apartment and tried to commit suicide by slitting his wrists and just like being a failed thief he failed at committing suicide and just ended up you know heavily bleed bleeding all over the place Jeez. so he turned the gas on his in his apartment and let it let it go and and lit a match and ended up blowing himself up along with half the building and, and part of the part of the neighborhood so that was the end of him but the objects that he stole over the years are still finding their way into the marketplace. And this astrolabe was one of them. And it ended up in the hands of an Italian collector who uh, immediately lawyered up and, and, you know, but he happened to be very respectful. And when we showed him the provenance and showed him that it was stolen from the museum, he was extremely cooperative sure, despite sure. the, you know, the usual, how could it be the same one? And, 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 you know, I bought it in good faith, but eventually, I, you know I twisted his arm and he agreed to give it back unconditionally to the museum. So um you know it was it was really it was fascinating and and the museum itself is fascinating, called Skokluster Castle outside of Stockholm. I encourage anybody to visit that, oh, that wow. castle. It really was fascinating, and I was able to get a private tour. Uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a gift for my pro bono efforts. Sure. And if you go and visit the museum, you can check out this
0: 15th century astrolabe that you had a hand in recovering. Uh, it's a pretty cool little little thing there. So let's say you've, you know, you've got some people who have got some stolen artwork that they're sitting on, but they want to do the right thing. Uh, what can they do? Can they, where can they find your database to upload it? How can they get in touch with you to make sure this gets back to, to the, their rightful
1: owners? The best way to contact me is artrecovery.com, chris at artrecovery.com. I will handle all tips discreetly and confidentially. You know, I get people all the time, you know, that come to me and say, look, my my grandfather brought this back from the war, or I bought this and I think it's stolen. Now, there's a lot of, you know, spirited people out there that don't have stolen art that contact me with crazy stories, trying to blame family members, but um, you know, you never know if we, we get a good tip here and there, and we will, we will assist artists and, and religious organizations at no, at no cost. And, uh, but, you know, we, we do represent a number of insurance companies, and they, people who have a theft should report the theft to their police, report it to their insurance company, and then they should contact us.
0: And do you do social media at all? If people want to, you know, if they want to fence a, a, a watch or anything.
1: Yeah, we uh, are active on Twitter at Art Recovery, and we we put in uh, daily reports of art thefts that have happened around the world, of rewards that are being offered, of, of our own recoveries, and the stories right on uh, Twitter on, at Art Recovery. We're also on Instagram, but. Uh, Twitter is where we uh, release most of the information that we have.
0: Well, this has been an absolutely enlightening conversation. Uh, I, I love what you do. You say it's not sexy, but I think I think it, it is kind of. This is a pretty sexy job. Not a lot of people doing it, and definitely not a lot of people doing it um, with the proficiency that you have. And the art world thanks you. I thank you for all your hard work. And I also want to thank you for being on the show today.
1: Well, thank you. It's been just like having a beer with a friend in a bar.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. I've done my job. You've done yours. uh, And I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design, written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. Now, if you like the show, you've got to subscribe because you don't want to miss an episode. Well, how do you do that? Well, we're on all the major podcasting platforms, easy to find. Well, let's say you're not a part of those platforms. What do I do? Don't worry, I got you covered. Fascinatingnouns.com is where you want to go. You can find links to every major podcasting platform right there on the webpage. Plus, we've got the show's archive. You don't have to go anywhere. You can find them organized by guest or, chronologically, by episode number, but that's not all. Scroll to the bottom, and you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages, all right there, fascinatingnouns.com. Plus, if for your favorite guest, we got news stories, updates, and links to where they are, how you can get in touch with them and follow them. Uh, it's right there. Everything's right there. I make it so easy for you. Once again, that's fascinatingnouns.com, and if you like this show. You're going to like everything that I do. Go to danieljglenn.com to find out more. Thank you for listening. End of transmission.